Excerpt from the movie The Exorcist, 1973, courtesy Warner Brothers Pictures. Look, I'm only against the possibility of doing your daughter more harm than good. Nothing you could do could make it any worse. I can't do it. I need evidence that the church would accept his signs of possession. Like what? Like her speaking in a language she's never known or studied. What else? I don't know. I'd have to look it up. I thought you were supposed to be an expert. There are no experts. You probably know as much about possession as most priests. Look, your daughter doesn't say she's a demon. She says she's the devil himself. Now, if you've seen as many psychotics as I have, you'd realize that's the same thing as saying you're Napoleon Bonaparte. You asked me what I think is best for your daughter. Six months under observation in the best hospital you can find. I'm telling you that that thing upstairs isn't my daughter. Now, I want you to tell me that you know for a fact that there's nothing wrong with my daughter except in her mind. You tell me you know for a fact that an exorcism wouldn't do any good. You tell me that! True crime. Sex. Political conspiracy. Celebrity gossip. Murder. UFOs. Crooked officials. The occult. Assassination. Courtroom drama. Rape. Corporate scams. Scandal sheets. Hello, everyone. My name is Thad Helsley, and welcome to Scandal Sheet. And in this episode, on the occasion of the 50th anniversary of the 1973 movie, The Exorcist, we are examining the claim by both the author of the book and movie and the director of the movie that this narrative is actually based on a true story. And to help me in this endeavor, I am joined by our co-host, Anurada. How are you? Hey, Thad. Hi, listeners. Happy New Year. I'm doing well. Super, super excited to be talking about one of the most controversial and amazing movies of all time, The Exorcist. So excited to talk today. And of course, no Scandal Sheet episode would be complete without our artificial intelligence engine, Bernice. Bernice, welcome. Thank you. I have six words for you. Really? What's that? The power of AI commands you. The power of AI commands you. And thank you for that, Bernice. Now, Anurata, when I pitched this idea to you, you said that this movie was one of the best films ever. Now, you're a... Uh, a much younger person than me, you're a millennial. How did you become so engaged with what is today a 50-year-old movie? Well, that I think it's just the fact that this movie was so controversial for that time, right? So you had, you know, the actors, hopefully there's no spoiler alerts here because it is a 50-year-old movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, I think, we, I think we're going to have to say, uh, yeah, uh, not worry too much about spoiler alerts. It's sort of like, you know, Cinderella, the shoe fits. Did you, did you hear about that? It's only been a thousand years. So, <laughs> True, true that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so you have the actor, a young girl, you know, maybe doing things that even till today, we would find as maybe controversial, appalling, that kind of thing, right? Maybe it would even be censored today. So you you're talking about the crucifix scene, yes, or just the general yes, curse scene. Okay, 
Yeah. I would definitely say the crucifix scene just, you know, I mean, profanity is one thing, which obviously is a lot in this movie. But then you also have scenes like the crucifix scene, which really kind of, I'm sure for that time was very, very scandalous, you know, so it's just intriguing as an actor myself to kind of see those kinds of scenes and to overall look at the movie from a lens of the acting perspective, right? It kind of makes you put yourself, not to become a method actor or anything, but kind of, kind of put yourself into that lens of what would I do, right? What would I have done as the mother? What would I have done as, you know, the person who is going through this? Uh, what would I have done as the priest? You know, so I think that's very interesting. And I think that's what really makes this movie stand out more. I think this also is, you know, really connected to the horror, um, you know, the horror genre very well. Right. So very good movie. I would definitely say it was a pretty good movie. Mm -hmm. So what, what do you make of the fact? So the movie came out on December 26, 1973, the day after Christmas. And yet in the movie itself, it's it's taking place clearly during Halloween. There's a scene where she's walking down the street and kids are trick-or-treating and what have you. And, you know, the leaves are blowing and stuff. So that's just sort of an odd choice. You know, Boxing Day, the day after. What do you make of that? Yeah, I mean, I feel like that was pretty gutsy, right? Like, <laughs> you don't you don't release the movie during Halloween itself, even the movie takes place during that time, but you release it after a very prominent religious figure's birthday, mm -hmm. right? So I feel like, was that a message? Was it just adding to the spookiness? Was it controversy? Was it Hollywood just, you know, kind of trying to be controversial as a whole. I'm not really sure, but it was it was very, very interesting and an interesting choice. I would actually want to look a little bit more into that and see why they chose that specific time. Mm -hmm. Okay. So Bernice, why is this old movie being released on its 50th birthday? And why is it even remembered today? The Exorcist helped to completely redefine the horror movie genre from then to now. In 1973, years before cable TV and VHS rental stores, it made $441 million in theater box office. In 2024 money, that would be $3.2 billion. As a comparison, the top grossing film of 2023 was Barbie, with both box office plus streaming plus DVD coming in at only $1.4 billion, less than half of what The Exorcist earned in 1973 and 1974. This record was surpassed by the movie Jaws in 1975. But neither the book or the movie Jaws would have been greenlit without the astonishing success of The Exorcist. Stephen King would not have had his first book, Carrie, published in 1974, without this movie. Hit supernatural horror movies such as The Omen, the 13-movie franchise, Halloween, The Shining, and the 12-movie franchise, Friday the 13th would never have existed without the worldwide success of The Exorcist. On your right up! Uh, William Peter Blatty and Warner Brothers clearly hit the jackpot zeitgeist on this movie. And and not 
everybody knows this today in 2023, but the 1973 movie came out as the direct result of a number one best-selling book written by Blatty, and it had the same name, and this was an era when people were turning best-selling books into movies, like The Godfather and Rosemary's Baby and Jaws etc. But the story goes back even further than the book itself, because in 1949, Blatty, the author of the book, and later the the writer-producer of the movie as well, was attending Georgetown University here in Washington, D.C. I think he was a junior. And on August 20th, 1949, an extraordinary article appeared above the fold on the cover of the Washington Post. And would you mind reading uh, some excerpts of that article for us? Sure. So the title of the article is Priest Frees Mount Rainier Boy Reported Held in Devil's Grip by Bill Brinkley. In what is perhaps one of the most remarkable experiences of its kind in recent religious history, a 14-year-old Mount Rainier boy has been freed by a Catholic priest of possession by the devil, Catholic sources reported yesterday. Only after between 20 and 30 performances of the ancient ritual of exorcism here and in St. Louis was the devil finally cast out of the boy, it was said. In all except the last of these, the boy broke into a violent tantrum of screaming, cursing, and voicing of Latin phrases, a language he had never studied, whenever the priest reached the climactic point of the ritual, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, I cast thee, the devil, out. In complete devotion to his task, the priest stayed with the boy over a period of two months, during which he said he personally witnessed such manifestations as the bed in which the boy was sleeping suddenly moving across the room. The final rite of exorcism in which the devil was cast from the boy took place in May. It was reported, and since then he has had no manifestations. A priest here voiced the belief that it was probably the first casting out of the devil through the ritual in at least a century of Catholic activities here and perhaps in the entire history of the church in this area. The ritual in its present form goes back 1,500 years and from there to Jesus Christ. But before it was undertaken, said a priest here, all medical and psychiatric means of curing the boy in whose presence such manifestations as fruit jumping up from the refrigerator top in his home and hurling itself against the wall also were reported were exhausted. The boy was taken to Georgetown University Hospital here where his affliction was exhaustively studied and to St. Louis University. Both are Jesuit institutions. Finally, both Catholic hospitals, said the priest, reported they were unable to cure the boy through natural means. Only then, said a priest here, was a supernatural cure sought. The ritual was undertaken by a St. Louis priest, a Jesuit in his 50s, who devoted himself to the task through prayers and fasting. The ritual began in St. Louis, continued here, and finally ended in St. Louis. The Catholic Church has two separate rituals of exorcism, the private comparatively simple from the ritualistic standpoint and the solemn. The latter can be used only with the permission of the archbishop. It was this solemn ritual that was performed on the Mount Rainier boy. 
Use of the ritual is rare in the Western Christian world, as are reported cases of diabolical possession. Never is permission to employ the ritual granted except where an afflicted person's case has been fully documented as being a bona fide one. Wow. So author Blatty has often said that this supposedly true story is what inspired him to write The Exorcist. So what do you think? I mean, other than the fact that he switched the possessed victim from a boy to a girl and it takes place in Mount Rainier, which is on the Maryland border of Washington, D.C., it sounds pretty similar to what goes on in the book movie. Yeah, I mean... And this is why it's so interesting, right? Because I feel like Blatty was trying to kind of rattle up the potential boundaries within Hollywood, right? Like switching the boy to a girl, right? And then mm-hmm. also adding the um, the crucifix scene and things like that, right? Is Is very is very interesting. They're very interesting choices, obviously trying to, you know, create some sort of feeling or emotion in the viewer. So I thought that that was really interesting. I do feel like it is very similar to some of the events that really happened. So I think that he kind of captured that pretty well. I just find it, obviously, I mean, he left out certain things, right? Like, Correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think that the priest stayed in the house. Uh, no, yeah. you're right. And plus, it took two months in real life, and it's not everything. Pretty much happened in one evening, and maybe just over a couple of hours in the movie. For sure, the actual exorcism itself. Yeah. So. Yeah. So. Yeah. So there's differences, but let me ask you this: So, were you aware before we talked about doing this podcast? Were you aware that there was? A story that this was based on because the movie itself doesn't say based on a true story or anything like that you know it's not in any of the promotional literature they sort of bury that aspect of it yeah no i actually was not aware that it was based on a real incident and it's interesting because now you see certain movies right like you see um the conjuring series and you see um sinister series and they're like oh based on a true story you know and i and they use that Mm. kind of like as the marketing you know, like to attract people in. Here it's different where it's interesting because they left it out. So I didn't really know it was based on a real incident, but I heard during the shooting itself that some crazy stuff went went on, you know, but I did not know it was actually based on a true incident and I didn't know that it was the boy. So the author of This Washington Post article died in 1993, and he isn't here to defend himself. But the director of the movie, the Academy Award-winning director, William Friedkin, says in his 2013 memoir that in preparation uh, for shooting, he was given access to the detailed notes from the individual priests who participated in the 1940 exorcism. Oh, wow. Excerpt from the Friedkin Connection. A memoir, courtesy HarperCollins Books. Read by the author. We sought permission to film at Georgetown University, the pivotal setting of the story. Blatty was one of the university's favorite sons, and since it was a Jesuit school, the faculty and the Jesuit order were comfortable 
with a story about the reality of demonic possession. The university was then under the leadership of Father Robert J. Henley, who had come to Georgetown only a couple of years before. He and I became friends. He believed in the veracity of the 1949 case and felt that Blatty had written an essentially faithful, though fictional, account of it. He was also a friend of Father Bowdern, the exorcist, and Father Tim Halloran, who had been on the faculty at Georgetown and assisted Father Bowdern in the 1949 case. Father Henley agreed to let me film in his office and the conference room next door and anywhere else on the campus. I used to meet him in his office at the end of his workday, and we'd share a glass of scotch. One early evening, he said to me, I've got something to show you, and he handed me a large, cracked red cardboard folder, tied with string. In it were 29 pages of typed documents. I glanced through them and felt a chill. These were the collated diaries of the priests, as well as doctors and nurses and other patients who were present during the 1949 exorcism. I felt that Blatty's fiction had the ring of authenticity, and reading the diaries only reinforced my conviction. I discussed their content with Father Henley, who told me that the Church took no official position on the case. In fact, it refused to discuss it. But all the accounts in the diaries are replete with graphic, incredible detail. The diaries were compiled by Father Raymond Bishop, and they begin on March 7, 1949. The diary describes rappings and scratching in the walls of the hospital room. Furniture moving as though by an unseen force. The shaking of the mattress. Sexual references to the priests and nuns. Religious relics flying off the walls. Agonizing shouts and screams that seem to emanate from deep within the boy. Curses, swearing, and diabolic laughter. As well as gyrations and physical strength beyond his natural powers. Blood, scabs, and welts appearing on his skin. Violent outbursts and attempts to kill the priests. The letters H-E-L-L -L appearing on his chest. And these words spoken from the mouth of the boy by another voice and remembered by all the witnesses. Quote, All people that mangle with me will die a terrible death, unquote. The diaries were verified by more than 50 witnesses. They're still in the Jesuit archives of the Washington, D.C. diocese. Okay, so that was the voice of the director, William Friedkin, who left us in August of 2023, only a few days short of his 88th birthday. What do you think about that? That is wild <laughs> you know what i mean like <laughs> i don't know what else to say i mean it is that's crazy so basically now looking at it you do see some of the things more that happen in the movie 
right? So you do have some of the more controversial aspects, like besides the shouting and the screaming, you have the sexual references, so on and so forth. So that in itself, I think it's great he got access. I don't know how he did, but it is also very creepy because to see all these things, I I can only imagine, right, at that time, what people were thinking, what was going on. That's interesting to say, (laughs) to say the least. Definitely very, um, very interesting, scandalous stuff. Well, the the reason he got access is because this is, they're filming in Georgetown University, which is where William Peter Blatty had graduated Mm. from. And before making The Exorcist, he had become a famous screenwriter in Hollywood and also a novelist. So he was sort of a, you know, a favorite alumni. And so, you know, two things. So it's like, okay, so the your big alumni that always, you know, gives you money and does keynote speeches for you, asks you a little favor. Can I check into the archives? Plus, you know, it's a Jesuit Catholic school. So they actually believe this stuff, right? So, I mean, if he's going to do it in a tasteful way, and, and the book, right? So they're making the movie. He had The book was already selling millions of copies. It was the most famous top seller of the time. So they're like, you know what? This is like driving people to Catholicism by the gazillions. Yeah. Sure, we'll do whatever you want. We'll do whatever you want, Bill. You want to read the diaries? Here they are. Come on, Bill. <laughs> Come on, Bill. Look, I'll pour you a glass of scotch. <laughs> But, you know, in fairness, we should add that the post article, the original post article has been disputed. For example, uh, in his 1993 book, Possessed, the True Story of an Exorcism, author Thomas B. Allen claimed that the possessed boy was just a deeply disturbed person. Nothing supernatural about him. But since when he was writing that book in 1993, all the eyewitnesses had been long deceased. Remember, this thing happened in 1949. So it's not clear mm-hmm. to me how Mr. Allen was able to disprove the written testimony of over 50 eyewitnesses that had sort of stood the test of time for over three decades. Now, I can't even find a copy of that book. It's Apparently, it's out of print. But, I mean, what do you think? Does it pass the smell test? I mean, I think that's a... That's a very rich claim, right? Like, how are you going to say 50 eyewitnesses falsified information? You know what I mean? Like, really, 50? 50 of them? I mean, unless they all knew each other and then they all got together ahead of time and they're like, oh, yeah, you're going to say this. Oh, yeah, I'm going to say the same thing. But, I mean, I don't know. Like, Well, unless it's sort of like a... Remember the movie Spotlight? That was like in the 2000 teens or something, which was about pedophilia in the Catholic Church. You know, there's always people who are not Catholic are are quick to say, well, you can't trust the Catholic Church. Mm. They always lie. Yeah, no, that's so, so it may be coming from that sort of a standpoint. And this is years before that particular scandal. But they're just saying, oh, look, they're just, you know. Playing this up for some PR, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, so, okay, so the cursing, right, and those things, okay, I get it. That could be someone, like, you know, someone that's disturbed. But, like, how do you explain, right, the bed moving and all those kinds of things? You know what I mean? Like, there's no earthquake around that time, so on and so forth. So, like, how (laughs) how do you explain that? stuff you know so 
I don't know. I mean, and it's very convenient that all those people that he's saying lied are not there to say, no, I did not lie. You know what I mean? So, right. you know, am I right. saying that there is no validity to his whole book? Uh, no, but I do think that maybe, um, I mean, I would really, really want to see, um, you know, how was he able to prove that their testimony is, you know, not there? Like, were they paid to all lie? Like, you know, I would really want to look into that. The evening of October 30th, 2015. The night before Halloween. Director William Friedkin and author slash producer William Peter Blatty participate in a ceremony held in Washington, D.C. to commemorate officially what had been known colloquially for decades as the Exorcist Steps as an official D.C. landmark. Built in 1895, the extremely steep 75 stone steps figure prominently in both the book and the movie. The mayor of Washington, D.C. presided at the event and unveiled a bronze monument as part of cinematic history. Thank, thank you all for being here. I really appreciate that you've all turned out for this event. I just realized that I've spent half my life involved with The Exorcist. Uh, it's over 40 years ago, and when I first came here, I must have walked up and down those steps a couple of hundred times. I'm gonna try and do it again when we're done, if I can. If I can't, I hope there's a, a medic around. <laughs> But I want to thank all the uh, residents of Georgetown, all the fans of The Exorcist for turning out this way. Let me tell you what this means to me. It means more than any of the awards that I've ever won or that this film has won. Because, you know, there's a lot of people who have won Academy Awards Mine is on a mantelpiece in my bedroom. It is only seen by my close family and friends. But this monument that they're about to uh, unveil uh, will be seen by thousands, I guess. Tens of thousands of people, eventually perhaps more, that will come through here and that will associate the film that we made with this beautiful and historic community. And I'm really proud of that and, and grateful. And as I said to a, a reporter earlier, in time, the Rockies will crumble. <laughs> Gibraltar may tumble. They're only made of clay. But these steps are here to stay. <laughs> During the making of the film, some very strange things occurred that don't commonly happen on movie sets. And many members of the crew uh, came to believe that somehow this production was cursed. I mean, because of the subject matter and maybe they were Catholic or just superstitious or whatever. I mean, do you want to tell us about some of that? Yes. So this, this is the crazy stuff. This is what actually made a lot of people want to watch the movies. So essentially, some of the instances are here. The McNeil Household Interior, a set constructed at the 54th Street Psycho Studios in New York, burned to the ground and had to be rebuilt from scratch. The, the, uh, the only thing I would add to that, so one of the reasons they were shooting, you know, why not shoot in L.A.? What, what the hell were they doing in New York, right? Why not shoot in, but this particular studio had 
early in life, it was a freezer. They would store meat and fish and animal protein products there. Yeah. And other movies had shot there that were doing winter scenes. And, you know, all those scenes when they're doing the exorcism, you can see their breath. So they had to refrigerate the set. And that's why they chose this particular building. So now, like when they shot Titanic with Leonardo DiCaprio, Mm -hmm. they could CGI in your breath, but not in 1973. They really needed to have a cold. It had to be below zero. So they would freeze the set, shoot the scenes, and shooting inside a freezer, what would happen with the hot lights and stuff, the sprinklers were constantly going off. Yeah and flooding the stage. So here's the irony. You've got a stage that on an almost daily basis gets flooded, and then somehow it burns to the ground. Holy moly. So Jason Miller, the guy who plays Father Karras, his five-year-old son Jordan was seriously hurt by a motorcycle during a beach visit. He recovered. Jake McGowan, the director, died two weeks after his scenes were shot, which is wild by the way max von sido's brother died in sweden during production linda blair's grandfather died during production linda blair's pet mouse died oh no <laughs> which is which is wild like who <laughs> sorry like who who notated that like oh above and beyond all the casualties <laughs> linda blair's pet mouse i don't know she probably I mean, she was only like 11 years old. She probably brought him to the set, you know, and people, the crew members were helping her take care of him, right? No, that's fair enough. That's fair enough. But still, that's that's very interesting. That's well, very interesting to look at that in, in, on top of all this. But the daughter of one of the limousine drivers learning of the film's subject matter began having hallucinations about holy objects and had to be institutionalized. So that's that's kind of crazy. A cemetery at Fordham University in the Bronx, where deceased priests were interred, was vandalized and its stones were split in half. I mean, that is kind of, you know, vandalized. Like I know, but stones split in half? I mean, what would you need to split a gravestone in half? Well, I mean, because it was vandalized. I know. I'm just trying to think of a tool that could split a t- gravestone in half, like a gigantic... I don't know what, you know, Mm. like a medieval axe or something. (laughs) A ghost from the medieval times came back to split that in half. There you go. There we go. A 14-foot-high statue of the demon Pazuzu was shipped to Iraq by jet and was somehow lost and untraceable. It was eventually located in Hong Kong. So I have many questions about this. First of all, I feel very bad that someone named him Pazuzu because the name Pazuzu doesn't really sound too scary. You know, well, <laughs> would have been he's, a, he's a very know, to have a different name. <laughs> well, he's a very, very ancient demon, you know, going back to like the Sumerian Empire thousands of years ago. So that's why they said, well, let's get this guy. And that's why they have all these statues of him. Like that very first thing that they find, you know, it starts out in the archaeological mm-hmm. dig, that little thing. They say, yeah. hey, come here. The little boy goes and gets them. And then that's, so they've got, there's a, a gazillion statues of this guy. You know, he's got, cause he's got like the head of an eagle and then he's got these wings and then he's got this gargantuan penis. So he's just like, oh, the wow. Ult- yeah. Good for yeah. you, Pazuzu. 
you Good got for that you, pizzazz. Yeah. It's like, okay, <laughs> lock up your sister. Yeah, so, <laughs> don't let him in, man. <laughs> it's like, that he's got like a, a steady stream of Viagra, 3,000-year-old Viagra. So. <laughs> What's interesting is why Hong Kong? Like, You why- know, when they... Well, uh, so there's two diff- two different accounts where that the people who were involved in the shipping were so terrified they were very superstitious. I mean, he's still again this this is a Mesopotamian god that goes back like five thousand years, long before Christianity, long before Judaism, and everybody is still terrified of this guy. They believe in this guy the same way that we believe in Satan. Right. So they were like, you know, okay, Hollywood builds this giant statue and then they give it to this shipping service and then the guys freaked out and nobody were willing to unload it. So that's how they think that it ended up in. There's one account that says it ended up in Australia, another in Hong Kong before they finally found it. Oh, that's wild. Holy moly. Well, very interesting. Good to know. <laughs> I don't know what else to say. Yeah. <laughs> Good for him. Good for you, Fazuzu. <laughs> I'm signing True. up for your OnlyFans account, man. Wow. Okay. <laughs> That's where he is. He's yeah, right. <laughs> That's where he is. <laughs> That's hilarious. Oh, my goodness. I mean, all respect, I am happy they found the statue. That is that is interesting. That is a very interesting. Uh, like, how does a 14-foot-high statue just disappear? So, very exactly. happy. Well, actually, yeah. no, because luggage... It's not like a letter, right? I'll tell you, luggage gets misplaced quite often. So, it's believable. So, if he's, four, he's 14 feet high and he's 8 feet wide... So the crate itself must have been 15 or 16 feet high with all the padding and stuff. And it says Warner Brothers Studios on it. I mean, how big is this plane that they put it on? <laughs> you know, even if it was the space shuttle, it'd be like, this is a big thing. It's like, it's, it's like, oops, it's not like a letter that slips, you know, that falls between the seat cushions or something. Yeah, exactly. Plus, it's like that very first sequence, that Iraq sequence, it's Father Marin, you know, Max von Sydow facing mm-hmm. off against the statue. And meanwhile, the dogs are like eating each other. You know, they're like, t- they're like fighting and tearing each other up. And the music goes, whoosh, boom, Washington, D.C. So it's a Holy big scene. Moly. It is a big scene. That That is crazy, honestly. Well, at least they found it. Interested yeah. to see what the airplane was that was carrying this. Well, I didn't put it in here, but they they did say uh, there's a special airline that specializes in transporting like extremely valuable paintings and artifacts, you know, back and forth across the world. So, I mean, this was supposed to be their specialty, you know, priceless artifacts on their way to an auction house or a museum or something like that. So that's another reason why. Wait a minute. You know, so it was all guaranteed. I mean, it was guaranteed for a million bucks or whatever, but I don't know. <laughs> I can only imagine how that news uh, news release went. Our specialty is transporting very valuable goods from one country to another. Didn't you just lose a 14-foot-high statue of the demon Pazuzu? Yes. Yes, we did. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> interesting stuff. Okay, so, as they left Iraq... 
Friedkin and his crew were held several hours at the airport in the wake of the failed coup against Iraq's leaders. Only after they left did they learn that the airport lounge in which they had waited was wired with explosives designed to kill the government cabinet as part of the coup. So, yeah, that's pretty interesting. My big question to you, so after all of these things that we've discussed, do you think it's at all possible that demonic possession could be real? Do you at all think the original 1949 case is real? I mean, where do you sit on all this? I mean, here's my thing, right? So do I feel like they happen often? No, I I mean, I mean, I don't know, right? Uh, there are a lot of things that are hidden from us for whatever reasons, security reasons, so on and so forth, right? Like we don't even know what happens in Area 51 half the time. So we don't know. But I feel like whenever I have read or seen cases, they have all been similar with like what has happened, right? So I think for folks to just be like, oh, okay, demonic possession does not exist, I think that that's a little bit narrow, right? Like, I think there's more to it. There's a lot of unexplainable things in our world, in this life, in this world itself. And I think that it's important to just know and accept that there are potentially things that could happen that are beyond our explanation that maybe we are not to know or maybe not to know now. Right. So when you see these things, right, like the the scratching, the carving, the 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 things flying and all that stuff, I've just seen it. And so often, like the same description, right, this flew across the room, this happened, that happened, that it's it's you can't really deny it. You know what I mean? Unless one person made it up and then the other ones are like, oh, yeah, that sounds good. Like when I make my movie, I'll do the same thing. I just feel like there's so many unexplainable things that. So I don't think that it's completely far-fetched to say that demonic possession doesn't exist. You know what I mean? I think it does exist. Now, who are the targets? Why are some people chosen than others? I don't know. Now that's up to debate. Some people say you invite them in. Some people say if you don't pray, they'll come. Whatever it may be, I don't know. But I do feel like there is a certain aspect that it, it does exist uh, to a certain extent. That's just me. As usual, we hope you'll follow or subscribe to Scandal Sheet on your favorite pod platform and share it with all your friends. We'd also love it if you'd leave us a shameless, over-the-top review on Apple Podcasts especially. That helps us build audience. We also want to hear from you. You can reach us online at scandalsheetpod.com, Facebook or Twitter, now called X, or just send us an email to contact at scandalsheetpod.com. See you again on Scandal Sheet. Copyright 2024. Thad Helsley Media LLC. All rights reserved.